I'm going to be taking a reading from Romans 7, verse 1 to 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who, has been who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were, which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now, today we are in Romans 7, or finish Romans chapter 6. And Romans 7 happens to be one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament, which I for because of the second half of the chapter. That uh, from verse 14 to 25, who is Paul talking about there, and there's a lot of debate about who the person is, whether it's a regenerate, uh, a believer, or a non believer that Paul is talking about in that area. But we'll get to that later on. But today, let's just try to. I just wanted us to see uh, what's the connection between this and the other chapter that Paul has been talking, uh, talking about through in Romans. First of all, in the, when we see verse 1, or do you not know? We also see a similarity in verse 3, or do you not know? So Paul is like getting two points across. He has finished one of the points in verse 3. Now he's getting in chapter 6, verse 3. He's getting to another point again in chapter 7, verse 1. And now he's talking about the law here. And he introduced the law basically in verse 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. It says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, introduces why the law came. And the way he introduces it, he says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, the way Paul is speaking, uh, it would seem to the Judaizers that he's speaking badly about the law. That the law just came in that sin will increase. And that, is, that wasn't good for them. And basically, that is how it's all connected. And uh, Paul just finished addressing the Gentile problem in chapter 6, which we are saying is license. The Gentiles are basically prone to license because they come from pagan backgrounds where there is no law, everything, their life is just sinful, basically. That is where they are always prone to when they hear of the message of grace. So, the, And they say grace is far, far more than your sin that have been created. So they... They want to always abuse grace, so Paul has addressed that in Romans chapter 6. Now in Romans 7, he's addressing the, the Jewish problem, which is legalism. The Jews, when they were brought up, they were brought up under the law, bound to the law and everything. But when they came to Christ, they were free from being bound to those laws for justification and all that. So, and for righteousness. So, they are always tending to always want to go back to the law. Even in the early church... There were always believers who were telling people that before you to get saved, you have to 
obey the law of Moses. You have to keep all the law of Moses to keep, keep people bound to the law again. That they themselves couldn't even keep when they were actually under the law. But now in Christ, he's telling people, go back to the law, go back to the law. And Paul is addressing this Jewish problem that that is not possible. And But the two messages that in those chapters, the license and the legalism problem, they are all important to all believers today. Because license and legalism are still with the church today, the present church. So we need to pay attention to the message of those two chapters. In verse 15 of chapter 6, Paul says, What then shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. May it never be. So he has talked about not being under the law. And in chapter 6, verse 15, he says, He introduces the idea that we are not being under the law. And he takes it up here in uh, chapter 7. And Paul is saying, uh, it's like, we all have the idea that law would actually make people sinless, that will make them not to sin. He says, shall we sin because we are not under law? Because That is implying by the statement that if you are under law, you will not sin. And that is the idea all of us have, that if someone is under law, the person will sin less. But that is not actually true in reality. And that is what Paul is going to show us in this chapter, chapter 7. Now, basically, we look at this in uh, different stages. We look at the axiom in verse 1. The analogy Paul says in uh, verse 2 to 3 of chapter 7. The, aff- the application in sh- verse 4 to 5, and look at the affirmation in verse 6. Now, verse 1 says, Or oh, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those knowing law, that the law goes on ruling over the man for as long as he is being alive? Now, or oh, do you not know, simply implies that Paul is talking about the self-evident truth that everyone should know about. It's implying that this should be common knowledge to all of us. Again, that what is telling us now that don't we know? And we have to ask ourselves if we actually know. And he uses the term brothers. Now, when he uses the term brothers, basically, um, he uses this term uh, 1 verse 13. He says, Do you not, uh, do, you, do not, you, I do not want you to be on our way, brother. <coughs> Then in 8 verse 12, it says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So, the brethren that is using in this place is, is like he's speaking to some specific people. To his Jewish brethren, basically, because he says, I am speaking to those knowing law, that the law. So he says, here he's talking about, he's, in this sense, basically, he's talking about, when he uses, do you not know brethren or no brothers? He's talking about, he's talking to the whole congregation. But his emphasis is actually his Jewish audience. And that's why you see in verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren. So he now says, my, he adds my. And anytime Paul adds my in front of the brethren, he's always talking about his Jewish brethren. You see that in uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 3. It says, For I wish, I could wish that I myself were a cause separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
Now it says, I'm speaking to those knowing law. And Paul uses law in different senses in this chapter that can be very confusing. He uses it in a sense without the definite article and the sense without with the definite article. And anytime he's using it in the sense of the definite article, he's using it for the Torah or the law of Moses. Now I believe he's using the law in the sense of the Torah, the law of Moses, not a Greek or a Roman law that Paul is talking about here. He's already talking about this the law of Moses here. But in this first part of the verse, it says knowing to those knowing the law. So it will imply that the lack of the definite article means that Paul is uh, making a statement that has a general application, which we should take note of. Now he says the law goes on loading or having authority as long as you are alive. And that is the basic thing about any law, both Jewish law and any law in the society. The law is only it has authority over you if you are alive. If someone commits a crime against the state, whatever state you are, whatever society you are, the law has rights over you if you are alive. If you murder someone and you and you die basically, or maybe you kill yourself after you murder the person, the law has no rights over you. They can't exercise the, uh, authority, justice in that case again, because the person that murdered the other person has died himself. So it's free from the law, basically. So the law has authority, has lordship over you, that you are subject to the law only if you are alive, for the rest of your life, basically. And that's the truth Paul is stating here. When you are dead, the law cannot apply to you, basically. That's the truth Paul is stating here, and we need to take note of. Now we'll go to the analogy, and we see this in verse 2 and 3. It says, for the married woman is bound by law to the living husband. However, if the husband should die, she is free from the law of the husband. Therefore, then the law is alive. Therefore, sorry. Therefore, then the husband is alive. If she is joined to another man, she will be called an adulteress. However, if the husband should die, she is being free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though joined to another man. And I believe here Paul is quoting the divine law, basically. That's what I believe he's quoting. Not uh, a Roman or Greek law of marriage. He's quoting the divine law of marriage. And in this analogy Paul gives us, we see some truths that come out, some spiritual truths that come out of this uh, analogy. The first truth we see, basically, is the relationship of man to the law. Now, the relationship of man to the law. The law is Lord, basically. The law is Lord. That is one thing we know. That is one of the relationship of man to the law that Paul states here. He says, But the married woman is bound by law to the living husband. There is a law of the husband, the authority of the husband. So he's saying, just as there has been under grace, just as there is the reign of grace, there has been under law. There's been under reign of law. Just as you are, the wife is under the husband, the authority of her husband, basically. That is the same way you are being under law. That is the relationship of man to the law. The Jews, when God gave them the Torah in the Old Testament, they had to submit to it. So they had to keep all the commandments, basically. 
Then Joshua will give them the option. Moses will tell them, keep all the commandments of the Lord. If you don't do this, you are going to have causes. If you do this, then there's going to be blessings for you, basically. So they have to submit to the commands of the Lord. Even the Gentiles who do not have the law written, they have the law written in their hearts, basically. And we see this normally, even in ourselves, basically, that there's actually some things within our nation that we know that this is actually right and this thing is actually wrong. Like now, there's no society that can ever, ever say it says it's right. Because there's something within them that knows there's something wrong about this. Or even bestiality, to sleep with an animal, have sex with an animal. Something within us knows that that is wrong. But because of we are suppressing the truth, basically, of this right and wrong that is written in our heart, we now create laws to say that these things are normal. We know the truth within our heart. And it gets to a level that people will hide the truth from their heart, hide this law that is written in their heart, that their conscience become dead totally to even sin or even conviction of sin. That's why you see people talking about uh, homosexuality being normal, being the nature of someone, and which is actually wrong. Nobody is actually born and uh, uh, God never designed anyone to be an homosexual. It's because of the suppression of the knowledge of God in truth that leads to God taking away the restraint of depravity over the person and gives them over to their depraved mind that brings about that homosexual nature out of them, which is abnormal. That is not the normal way God has decided for us to use our bodies. And they, we have to submit to the law. Is this dictates, whatever the law states, we have to obey it. As the husband has authority over his wife. We see this basically uh, in uh, Numbers 5.29. It says, this is a law of jealousy when a wife being under the authority of her husband. So God has always had the plan of the man being the head and the wife under the authority of her husband. Right from the Old Testament, the New Testament continues the same way. Christ is Lord, the church is the wife. The same way the husband is the Lord and the wife is the body. The wife is to submit in everything to her husband as unto the Lord, basically. And we see this principle again all throughout. There's no such thing about uh, um, even in the Old Testament about the wife being able to divorce her husband. It was only the husband that had the authority to divorce his wife. So basically, that was the way it was in the Old Testament. Now, there's no such thing as egalitarianism that the husband and wife has equal authority in the marriage. In the marriage, it's never taught in the scriptures at all. That that it goes astray from everything we know about scriptures. The husband is always the head, is always the Lord, and the wife is the body basically. And even in reality, this so-called egalitarian uh, style of marriage, equal authority in marriage, doesn't work out really, because if one, if the two. Because the Bible actually calls it one flesh relationship, one head, one body. Because in one flesh, there cannot be two heads or two bodies. So imagine now, 
marriage is like a democracy. Christian marriage is not dictatorship and it's not democracy. But it's simply uh, one submits to the other, the other one loves the other. There's respect, there's a complementarianism. They complement one another. That's what Christian marriage is basically. So one head, one body. So imagine now in a marriage now, you have two heads, two body, because they have equal authority now. Imagine they come to a decision now where their decisions are conflicting each other basically. They want to make a decision and this one disagrees with the other. So how do they come to an agreement without divorcing the marriage or without breaking up the marriage? You see now, in that state, one person has to lay down their decision for the other person, for peace to reign. And you will find out over time in such kind of marriages that there's actually one person that will actually be giving up their own decision for a long time for the other person's decision to reign supreme. And to avoid all these kind of things to happen, God in his all mighty wisdom has decided basically that let the man be the head, the Lord, and uh, let the wife be the body, basically. Let the man be the one to take the final decisions on every matter. Rather than there being an argument. So even in those egalitarian marriages, it doesn't work out. One person is actually being the Lord. It could actually be the wife that is actually taking up the final decision in every issue in the marriage, in those egalitarian marriages. Or it could be the husband taking the and the wife giving up her own decision. So in that way, it's still working the way God wants it, working, only in the wrong order that it could work in. So yeah, God has just decided this is the way it should work in wisdom. And the wife is self, uh, the husband is uh, has a self-sacrificial love. He's not trying to gratify himself for his desires. Always wants to please the wife in everything. He's not always thinking about himself when making all those final decisions, basically. So that is one thing we see here. The husband has authority over the wife. So that's the relationship of the man to the law. The law has authority over men. The Torah. The law of Moses have authority over men, whether written in the tablet or written in their heart. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Now we see again another truth come out here. It says the binding character of the law. The binding character of the law. And we see that the law, uh, oh, sorry, from the analogy, sorry. The binding character that there is a union. You are united to the law. You are the... Uh, you are united to the law. That's what it says when it says the uh, you are bound by the husband and the wife are bound together. The husband and the wife are joined together. So there's a union, basically that one flesh relationship, and the union is for life. It's for life. First Corinthians seven verse thirty nine says the wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to marry to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So you see here again, it says, bound as long as the husband lives. So we see that the union is forever. That is the way the union is. Not forever, sorry. I mean for life. That as far as the person stay alive, you have the union. So if you are alive, you have a union with the Lord for, uh, for life. Till you die. That one flesh relationship, that mystery. 
So no divorce can break the union. And that is why it says in the text, it says if um, if she goes and joins another person, she is called an adulteress. While her husband is still alive. If her husband is still alive and she goes to go and have union with another person, she is called an adulteress. So there is a lifelong union between the husband and the wife, which you see here, that no divorce can break. And there's a lot of laws. Jesus made concerning the the marriage about when he's speaking about uh, uh, marriage and divorce. Jesus made a lot of statements, and he said in Matthew chapter five, verse thirty-one to thirty-two, he says it is. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, make her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he says, he got, uh, Jesus was only permitting divorce for the reason of what? Uh, of sexual immorality. But now he never permitted remarriage. Because divorce doesn't break... The marriage, God hates divorce in sight. That, that union is lifelong. So he says, but, and, it, and that's why he says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if you, if you divorce your wife for any other reason apart from adultery, you are making her an adult, uh, uh, commit adultery. That's what is happening. You make her commit adultery. By divorcing your wife, and he says, whoever marries a divorced woman, whether whether she was from uh, she committed adultery before, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So God didn't give any permission. Uh, Jesus didn't give any permission for remarriage, and we see some plain statements like this again in Mark chapter ten, verse eleven to twelve. He says, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she, uh, uh, she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. You see this plain statement, divorce, remarriage, is totally wrong. It's adultery in God's sight. Divorce and remarriage is adultery in God's sight, this guy. We see again in Luke 16, verse 18, this same... Uh, principle that Lord Jesus said, say everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So divorce and remarriage is adultery in God's sight, basically. So divorce doesn't end that union. And even God in the Old Testament too, when Israel was going into adultery, God divorced Israel at times. You can see it in Jeremiah and Isaiah. But never did he, did he go and marry another person. He never went to go and marry another person, even after divorcing Israel. So, because of their, Israel's adultery, going after other gods. So, the relationship is for life. God in the Old Testament 
with Israel, Christ with his church in the New Testament for life, forever, married, that relationship. And this, this relationship is corporately bound forever. God had an internal covenant with Israel that he would never leave or forsake them. It was bound with Israel forever in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Christ is bound with the church corporately forever. But individuals within, they are not bound forever. There is where the conditionality comes. That's why we have the uh, tension between unconditional and conditional election, basically. So, in, in the Old Testament, people could be cut off. Even though God was bound with Israel, had union with Israel forever, your union with God in the Old Testament could also be cut off when you go into unbelief. You are cut off, basically, and the New Testament testifies of that. And the same way in the New Testament, your union with Christ is on the condition of faith. So if you have faith in Christ, you are in union with Him. The moment you stop believing or you no longer believe in Christ, that union is severed. You are cut off from Christ. But Christ has an unconditional relation with His church. He has an internal covenant with His church forever. But the persons inside the church, that union is conditional on faith. Now, we see again another truth coming out from this analogy that there's a possibility of bringing another relationship. And what's the possibility? It says, she is being free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though joined to another man, if the husband should die. So if the husband should die, then she's free. There's she can have another relationship. So the only permission for remarriage, the only permission for remarriage in the New Testament and the rule of the Bible is what? Death. If one of the partner dies, the other person can remarry. Basically. And that is what Paul is telling us here. So it, 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 it will not even make sense. Imagine if, if the woman was still bound to her husband even after death. Or the husband is still bound to the wife even after death. There will be no possibility of another relationship anymore. But now we see in this text a possibility of another relationship. The death of one partner, whether the husband or the wife, allows for the possibility of a new relationship, a new union to come out. Now, we see again another uh, principle, spiritual truth coming out from the text, that the whole purpose of relationship is to bring fruit to God. You don't get to a relationship or marriage to satisfy your lust, your sexual lust, your sexual desires. No, that's not why you go into marriage or relationships. It's not to gratify yourself, to make full of yourself that I want, I want a woman that I can be dictating over, I can be dominating. I want a woman that can be cooking for me and become my slave in my house. That is not why we go into marriage. That is a totally wrong purpose of marriage. Or because of you are feeling lonely. You are tired of the single life and everything. I'm just feeling lonely. I need someone around me. Someone to talk to. Someone to do this and that. That is why you go into marriage. No, the main goal of relationship or marriage is to bear fruit to God. So you ask yourself, is your relationship bring, bearing fruit to God? 
is your marriage bearing fruit to God? Is that union that you have bringing fruit to God? Now, let's go on to the next point, which is the application of verse 4 and 5. It says, Likewise, my brothers, also you have been put to death to the Lord through the body of Christ, unto that you may be joined to another, the one having been raised out from the dead, so that we should bear fruit to God. For while we were in the flesh, the passions of sin that were through the law were at work in our members, unto the bringing forth of fruits to death. Now, likewise means in the same way, that is working on the analogy. Paul is now drawing out the application of that analogy. It says, you have been put to death to the law. So basically, the law is the husband and we are the wives. So Paul is saying you have been put to death to the law. And the means that we have been put to death, basically, that Paul says, is the body of Christ. That is Christ in his bodily crucifixion on the cross. That is the means that we have been put to death to the law. And it says this principle here again in the... Uh, that Christ in his body crucifixion is the means by which he escaped sin and death. Chapter 6, verse 7 to 9 says, For you as died is freed from sin, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. So that bodily crucifixion liberated us from sin and death, and liberated him from sin and death. So we're liberated from the body of sin. Through that Christ's bodily crucifixion. And the same way we are liberated from the body of sin, liberated from sin and death. That is the same way we are liberated from the law. The same crucifixion. The law is the husband and we are the wives. And one partner has to die for there to be a new relationship as we have seen, basically. And now the law is eternal. The law is forever. It's just like... Um, uh, let me just use the analogy of maybe uh, vampires, basically. We know from meat, uh, meat and vampire movies, basically, vampires can live forever. So imagine you are married to a vampire. So if you are married to a vampire, you know that that relationship is for life. That you yourself, if you are the wife and maybe the vampire is your husband, that relationship is for life because the vampire is not going to die. You are the one that is going to die. So there's no way, possibility of you entering another relationship ever. And that is the same way, that same analogy. The law is forever. The law is eternal. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, 18, says, For truly I say to you, until everyone and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, until all is accomplished. So the law can never die. So, it's only the law that can enter into a new relationship because it's forever. The only the vampire that can enter into a new relationship because it's forever. You, maybe the wife dies, can marry another person. So the law can enter a new relationship. Once we die, it comes, another person uh, has union with you and continues the same way. So what is the way for us? What is the hope for us now to enter into a new relationship? Since the law cannot die, that means we are the ones that have to die. For us to enter a new relationship, and that's what Paul says. For in for a new union to be possible, we have to die. 
and he says we have been joined to another the one resurrected which is christ so christ is the means by which we died to the law so when christ died we died when he died on that cross we died so moment we are die we die we are no longer in relationship to the law anymore so we can be joined to another and the another is what the one resurrected from the dead which is christ so this is the new union you have died to the law and now you, you have been resurrected with christ through the body of christ and now to be married to christ no longer married to the law there's the new union the new binding relationship that you now have with christ which is forever true faith there's a new authority that we now have basically that this is the one that we obey we are under his authority we are under we swear our allegiance for better for worse for richer for poorer we are with christ forever this is our authority whether whether he blesses us or he does not we are with him forever and we we are under his lordship we submit to him in everything Whatever he demands for of us, we give it to him. Our total obedience is to Christ. And now there's a new law for us to follow. Because you have to be bound to the law of the husband. And the law of the husband before was the Torah. We listened to his dictates and submitted to it. Now we are bound to the law of Christ. So whatever Christ dictates, that's what we obey. That's what we follow. Now let's look at the necessity of this union. Why is this union necessary? And the union is necessary, as Paul says, so that we may bear fruit to God. And we notice right from time, right from time inception, when God created the world after the fall and everything, God has always been investing in mankind, trying to get fruit for himself, trying to get glory back to himself, trying to get something useful for man. He has invested promises, Invested blessings. Whatever you can think of, God has invested it on mankind. But he couldn't get it. We don't see this principle in there. Luke 13 verses to 9. Jesus began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which he had, which had been planted in his vineyard. And he, has, he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer, and it bear fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And... Here we see the principle that God is even putting fertilizer and investing different things for us. And the thing basically is that we have a very short time to live. And we must always bear fruit to God. And we see from this principle, it says, we don't know when death is going to come for us. That's one thing all of us should know. None of us know when death is going to take us. And God is always looking for fruit from each person's life. Because he has planted us here on the earth, so he's looking for fruit from our lives. And to be sincere, if there's no fruit, he says what? 
in the next year if it does not bear fruit after adding fertilizer cut it down so there's going to be a day when they are you are going to be cut down each and every one of us there's going to be a day when we are going to be cut down what is going to be happening is that the day you are cut down is it that are you going to be found with fruit or with no fruit are you going to be cut down for the purpose that you did bear fruit or you are going to be cut down to the for the purpose that you are already ripe you have fulfilled your purpose what we have to check our lives what is the purpose that we are going to be cut down for and i hope we will be cut down for the purpose that we are ripe not because we didn't bear fruit to god the same way even in israel god always invested in Israel, wanted to bear fruit from them, and he didn't get it. Jesus says this in Matthew 21, verse 33 to 43. He says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, the owner, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretched wretches to the wretched end and rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you ever read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and his marvelous on our side. Therefore, I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So we see in this story that God had given Israel, rented them his vineyard for them to produce fruit for him. And they couldn't be hearing fruits, they were stealing the words God has invested and using it for their own purposes. God sent his prophets many times and times again to, uh, to warn them. They killed the prophets. That was not enough. He sent his son, which is Jesus Christ. To them, and he killed our Lord of glory. He killed him. And Jesus said basically that this kingdom of God is going to be taken to another who is going to bear fruit to it. And I believe another is the Gentiles basically who the kingdom of God was brought to, which has now become the church basically, and um, to bear fruit of it. And and uh, in the old in the old testament, sorry, even through the gospel, God is always sowing seeds, trying to get fruit. Matthew thirteen verse twenty three says, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who bears the word and understands it, who bears fruit and brings forth some a hundred fold, some sixty and some thirty. So there's a seed which is the word of God 
that is always spreading, going around. God is always sowing through us, basically. We are always sowing this seed. As we are preaching the gospel to multitudes, we we'll find out that many, when we have put the seed to them, thrown the seed to them, many don't produce any fruit out of it. Many are unfruitful. Only a few that produces 50 foods, 40, 100, 60, 30 foods. Only some out of the many that will spread the seeds to, that God will invest in, only some will produce fruit out. But in one, there was hope. In the Old Testament, there was one life that was prophesied to bear fruit. Isaiah 11 verse 1, it says, And then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And this was our Lord Jesus Christ that was prophesied here. And only Christ bear the fruit that God had always wanted from man. Gave God always what he wanted. Everything God always required from man, Christ gave him. And that is why for us to bear fruit to God, we need to be in union with Christ. Galatians 2 verse 19 to 20 says, For through, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So the purpose of you dying to the law is that you may live to God, that you may bear fruit to God. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Christ is to live through you. You have to live the Christ life for you to be able to bear fruit to God. And you remember Jesus Christ in John 15, it says, Abide in me, for without me you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, the Father prunes you, you bear more fruit unto him. God always wants us to bear fruit unto him. So the moment we are abiding in Christ, continuously, his words are abiding in us. We are living, this Christ is living through us. That is the only way we can bear fruit to God. Christ has to live the lifestyle that he lived on earth through you. When he lives through you, then you'll be, because he himself knows how to bear fruit to God, you will be able to bear fruit to God because he's living through you. Now we see again from the test the characteristics of life without union with Christ. And a life without union with Christ is a life which is in flesh. It's characterized by a life dominated by lusts, by desires, by the will of men, evil thoughts, always thinking of something evil to do. They are just surrounded by evil thoughts. And when temptations just come, because of they are filled with sin, when temptations just come, they can never overcome it. They just fall into the domination of the sin. They are bound in bondage to it. So it all starts with the mind and it goes to their words. You see how their words kind of talk. That you talk. That is life outside Christ. Outside union with Christ. Always in the realm of the flesh. They see people according to the flesh. You look at people. When they look at people with their relationship. What can I gain from this person? I want to marry this person. The reason why I want to marry this person is because I need money in this life. I'm always looking for what can I profit out of this relationship? What is there for me? They are not looking for what can they give? They have this kind of tribalistic mindset, seeing everything according to the flesh, according to the flesh. 
That is a life that lives in the realm of flesh. That is outside the union with Christ. He says this lifestyle, again, is characterized by simple passions aroused by the law. So simple passions were working in our members. And when the law came, it was aroused. And there is, is the same thing, for example, someone who is a smoker, an addicted smoker, that simple passion is already inside him. Then now he now comes to somewhere where they write, don't smoke. Even though he was not thinking of smoking before, you just see something just run through his body to want to get a cigarette and actually smoke in that area. Of when you are seen it there, don't smoke. There are times there, there are people who who uh, are used to dumping refuse outside or pissing in some kind of certain areas. They will write, don't dump refuse here. Animal uh, pay fine. But people will still want to disobey it. It's everything that they've written there. Because that is the nature, basically. The same thing with the urination. They will still urinate there and see what they want, what the person would do. Because that is already that simple passion is already within them. And the law doesn't reduce it. It actually increases it the more. You tell a baby, don't go out of the fence. And it will still go out. Want to dare what will happen. Just because you created that law, they want to see what will happen. And he said to would fight basically. So that people, two people want to fight. And he, he, one of the persons that is fighting will say, point at me again. And you yourself, you want to see what will happen and you point at the person. Because of that simple passion that is within us. That's why we're doing all these things. The law is just arousing it out. You see fences with dangerous score signs and it says, don't, don't enter here. You will still want to enter. To see what is this idea. Because of as you just say, don't do this, something within you just arouses to want to do it. That is what the law, it triggers this uh, sinful passion working in our members and it bearing fruit unto death. The law cannot sanctify. You cannot live a sanctified, the holy life by the law. You can, the, the, the same way the law cannot justify anyone. The same way the law cannot sanctify anyone. Because God demands 100% of the law. And all of us can keep 100%. And that's why Paul says, this righteousness that is revealed and the gospel is the righteousness from faith to faith. So you begin from faith, you end with faith. Justification is by faith. Sanctification is by faith. The law cannot sanctify. So don't go to the law for your sanctification. That I want to keep the law. And even though I've been justified by faith, I want to keep the law for my sanctification to live a holy life. No. Your justification is by faith. Your sanctification is by faith. From faith to faith. Now verse 6, the affirmation. And Paul says, However now, we have been free from the law, having died in that which we were bound, in order to be slaves in newness of the spirit, and not in newness of the letter. So he says, now, however, all these things were in the past, but now. And now, it says, we have been freed from the law. How were we free from the law? By dying to it. And that's what he has been saying all through. We died to the law through Christ. Through the body of Christ, that's how we died to the law. So the, the, that death to the law freed us from the law. 
And that's what we are saying. How shall we who have died to the law continue to live in it? The same way if you are dead to sin, you can't continue to live in it. That is the same way if you are dead to the law, you can't continue living in it. You can't continue being bound to the law and being bound to Christ. You are dead to it totally. You don't have union with sin and union with Christ. And I was, uh, <laughs> I was reading on Twitter, someone said, you can't live like hell and make it to heaven. And that is the truth. You can't live like a Pharisee and make it to heaven. Jesus said the righteousness that you have must supersede that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Your righteousness must supersede that of the Pharisees and the scribes to make it to the kingdom of heaven. So you can't live like a Judaizer and make it to heaven. Not possible. And he says the purpose of us being freed from the law is that what? We'll be slaves in the newness of spirit. Not slaves in the oldness of later. And later means the later of the law. You remember the law was brought in in tablets in the Old Testament. They were written on tablets. And over time they were written in scrolls, in scriptures. That is how the law had been passed on. So later of the law, basically. Now, what is this saying in the newness of spirit? Spirit could mean spirit of the law or behind or, or, or the spirit behind the law. It could actually mean the Holy Spirit. I think it's actually both. Remember when, he, um, when Jesus Christ was expounding the laws of the Old Testament? Like when he say, um, um, do not uh, commit adultery. Jesus Christ now expanded it that if you have committed lust in your heart, if you have looked at the woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery in your heart. When expanded that law of the Old Testament. So we, we go beyond the mechanical writings of the letter and look at what is the spirit behind the law. What is the purpose God was trying to accomplish by making this law? The same way with the Sabbath law. The same way with the the law of uh, covetousness, stealing, murder. When Jesus expanded murder, he says if you are if you have committed uh, if you are angry with your brother, basically that you have committed murder in your heart. So he's looking at what is the mind, what is the heart behind lead that leads to that, to that leads to these outworkings on the outside. So once you have already done it, you may not have done these deeds in the outside, but if you have done it in the heart, it's as good as committing it outside in the sight of God. So we look at the spirit behind the law. Because the Pharisees were so concerned with the letter of the law, the mechanicals of the law, and the, uh, the, the thing became so bodysome. So it's no longer a matter of, of uh, grace anymore, it was just so mechanical and becoming a burden for them. I believe the spirit basically is, is both. Now, it's by the newness of the spirit we can walk in the newness of life, which it says in Romans 6, verse 4. It says, 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there's a, this is this is something that is new. It's not something of, that is old. This was the old one was in later. The way they, they were slaves to God was in the newness of later. The letter of the Lord, that is the way they were slaves to God. But now we are slaves to God in the newness of spirit. Not, not in the letter of the law, but spirit. And there is a contrast between letter and spirit. Read in Romans 2.27-29. It says, And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? Though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law, for it is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but it is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And Paul is reducing the Jews, the usage of the word Jew. He's not saying that Christians are Jew basically. The Jew is actually, the true Jew is actually an Israelite who has been what? circumcised by the spirit not by the letter of the law and his praise is not from men but from god so there must be circumcision of the heart by the spirit the letter of the law cannot do this again second corinthians 3 6 to 7 bring this guy say who also has made us adequate as servants of the new covenant not of letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, but fading as it was. So this newness of spirit is the new covenant, and is of this Holy Spirit, not written in tablets. You know the Old Testament, the laws were written in tablets, but now it's written in human hearts. That is the new covenant. It's written in new human heart, the laws, not written in the uh, tablet. And the letter of the law kills. The spirit gives life. The spirit gives eternal life. The letter of the law was just bringing condemnation. You just kept on bringing this condemnation within yourself because you couldn't keep it perfectly. You couldn't meet God's standard. And you always felt condemned. Anytime you just hear the law, you just hear the law, you are always feeling condemned. How can I make it to heaven? How can I make it to God's standard? I can't keep this. That is what joy ringing upon you. But the spirit is one that gives this life, that gives eternal life, no longer condemnation. There is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The ministry of death, that is what it was just bringing about. It brings the condemnation before your face, brings death before your face. Every time, the letter of the law. And now, you remember, even the day of the law given, 3,000 people died. The day of the Spirit given, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. That is one thing, that is the difference between the ministry of death and the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of life. So to walk in the newness of life, you have to be a slave of the Spirit. You have to, you have to listen to his details. What is the Spirit saying? You have to obey him. He's the one who gives life, so you have to obey his authority. If the Spirit tells you to do this, you follow his leading. You are not to serve in the oldness of the letter anymore. That is not the way you are to serve God. You are to be a slave to God in the newness of the spirit. God has put his spirit within his people. 
for them to be spirit-saturated subjects, to be subjects of His kingdom, for us to be able to keep God's laws, for us to be true subjects of His kingdom. God has to empower us. God has to enable us to keep His laws and His commands. So we have to be slaves of the Spirit to obey His dictates, to yield to the Spirit and His dictates. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words that come with so much clarity, O Lord. Thank you, O Lord, for this truth that you have freed us, O Lord, from the law. The law cannot justify us. The law cannot sanctify us. May we never go back to the law again. Lord, may we never have the relationship with you based on the law. But to serve you, not in the oldness of the letter, but to be a slave to you in the newness of the spirit. O oh Lord, help us to live in the realm of the Spirit, not in the realm of the flesh anymore. Help us to obey the desires of the Spirit. Help us to obey your live for your will, O oh Lord. To live for the dictates, O oh Lord, of the Spirit. Help us to yield to your Spirit, O oh Lord, that we may be able to walk in this newness of life that you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in. That we may be able to produce good works, that we may be able to bear fruit unto you. Let Christ live through us, O Lord. Let Christ be manifested in our lives, O Lord. We ask all this, O Lord, for your glory. That you may be glorified in all things, O Lord. And we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.